right, welcome back everyone. This is the Rightly Dividing Podcast. I'm Carlos Frazier, and today we are continuing our study through the book of Hebrews. And we are currently in chapter 1 of Hebrews. Last time we went through verses 4, 5, and 6, and we saw that Jesus is so much better than the angels. He is above and beyond them. He is not an angel, but he is God the Son. And we ended in verse number 6, where God even says of Christ that all the angels of God should worship him. And we know, of course, that none is worthy of worship except for God himself, and no angel can be worshipped. In fact, John in Revelation 22 bows down to worship an angel that showed him the things that he had seen. And when he does this, the angel rebukes him and says, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God. So God alone is worthy of our worship, but God said that the angels should worship Christ. So that is where we left off there, demonstrating that Christ is so much better than the angels. And really, we're still there. We're still seeing that Christ is better than the angels. But now, in this portion, the writer is going to further demonstrate Christ's superiority by focusing on his deity, his dominion, his righteousness, his power, his eternality. He's going to focus on the person of Christ and the power of Christ and his majesty and further demonstrate how much above the angels he is by showing us all of this. So let's get into the word of God. I actually want to go ahead and go all the way back to verse number one and read up through verse eight, just so we get the full context of what's going on. Hebrews chapter one, verse number one. It says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is for ever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. So in our study today, I want to go over verses 7 and 8. So I want to read those two again, having the context of the previous six verses that we just read. I'm going to read verses 7 and 8 again. And of the angels, he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is for ever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. So verse number seven here, where it says, And of the angels he saith, it's talking about God the Father, that God the Father says of the angels, 
who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Now that may seem like odd wording, but this that's because this is a quote from the book of Psalms. So that that's why that wording seems a little off, but he's he's quoting Psalms. The writer of Hebrews here is quoting the Psalms and that's why it reads who maketh his angel spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. And the writer is saying that it was God who said of the angels he maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. And that sounds great. That sounds like a compliment to the angels that God makes them spirits and his ministers, he makes them a flame of fire. That sounds awesome. That's very complimentary to the angels. And I'm not taking away from that at all. That truly is something wonderful to be said about someone that God makes you a spirit and a flame of fire. That sounds awesome. But it's important that we remember the context of this is that he's drawing a distinction between the angels and Christ. So even though this is complementary to the angels, it is primarily meant to draw a distinction between them and Christ to show their inferiority. So he's complementary towards the angels, but not to the degree that he is of the Son. And I mentioned this is a quote from the Psalms. So let's go to Psalm 104 and let's get the context of what's being quoted here. Because the writer of Hebrews here is quoting one verse from Psalm 104, but I want to read the first five verses of Psalm 104 so that we can really get the context of what's being said here and understand what the writer is trying to get across. So in Psalm 104, verses 1 through 5, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty, who coverest thyself with light as with a garment, who stretchest out the heavens like a curtain who layeth the beams of his chambers in the waters, who maketh the clouds his chariot, who walketh upon the wings of the wind, who maketh his angel spirits, his ministers a flaming fire, who laid the foundations of the earth that it should not be removed forever. So here in Psalm 104, this is still complimentary to the angels. This is not derogatory towards the angels at all. It says that God makes them a, makes them spirits and his ministers a flaming fire. That's a that's a great thing to have said about anybody. That still sounds great for them. They're they're spirits, they're a flaming fire. That's awesome. But now we can see the fuller context of this is that this is not all about the angels. But Psalm 104 is all about the power and majesty and wonder of the Lord. What the psalmist is illustrating is God's power and majesty. So in verse number four, where it says, who maketh his angel spirits, his ministers a flaming fire, he's illustrating the power of God to make his angel spirits and his ministers a flaming fire. This isn't on the angels. This is on God that he makes them spirits, that he makes his ministers of flaming fire. So the context is not that, oh, look how powerful and wonderful and glorious these angels are because they are spirits and a flaming fire. The context in the psalm is that God is so great and so majestic and so powerful that he makes his angels, his messengers, spirits, and his ministers a flaming fire. 
It's saying that God is so powerful that he empowers and enables those who serve him. His angels, he makes them spirits. His messengers and his ministers, he makes them a flaming fire. The one who has the glory here, the one who has the power is the God who makes them. He rides on the clouds as chariots. He rides on the wings of the wind. He stretches out the heavens as a curtain and he makes his angels spirits and he makes his ministers a flaming fire. And so what we should see and understand from this is not that the angels are so great because they are a flaming fire or because they are spirits, but that God is so great that he commands them. God is so great that they are at his whim. These spirits serve him and are messengers for him. These spirits that are a flaming fire minister unto him. They serve him. They are at his command. They are at his will. He has the sovereignty over them. The context is that God is so great and high and mighty that the angels, the spirits, these ministers that are flaming fire are his ministers. They are his servants. They are his messengers. So if we have that context in mind, when we go back to Hebrews 1, where the writer of Hebrews has quoted this verse to say that this is what God said of his angels, that he makes them spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. He's not saying that to show that he has elevated the angels. What he is showing there is that they are his ministers. They are his servants. They are his messengers that do his bidding. The angels exist to serve him, to do his will and his bidding, to minister to him and to minister to those that are his. The one with the power, the one with the authority is the Lord God. And when we take this quote where the writer has placed it in verse 7 and tie that with what he has to say in verse 8, we see that that same context remains. So let's read it again. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire, but unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Wow, what a contrast. He makes the angel spirits, but to the son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Yeah, he makes his ministers a flame of fire, but to his son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The ones that were created to minister to him are flaming fire, but to his son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The ones that serve as his messengers are spirits. But to his son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. What a contrast and what a powerful declaration from God himself that the son is God. I want to say that again. This is a declaration from God the Father himself that his son, Jesus Christ, is God. We read it right here that it is God speaking. The writer is telling us, but unto the son he saith, that's God, unto the son God says, thy throne, 
O God, is forever and ever. The Father spoke to the Son and said, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. If anybody ever tries to tell you that the Bible does not say that Jesus is God, take them to Hebrews chapter 1, verse number 8, and show them that God himself called Jesus God. Now, the heretic is going to be quick to point out that the word God, with a little g, was sometimes used to refer to rulers or magistrates. And that is true. It, it is true that, that the Hebrews would sometimes use God with a little g to describe a magistrate or, or a ruler of some kind. However, it is very important that we understand that the way the word was used to refer to magistrates was different than the way it is used here. Its primary usage, its typical usage, is to refer to God himself. And it is only with very specific usage that it applies anywhere else. First off, it would specify who it's speaking of and who it's speaking to, that they are not a God, or that they're, excuse me, that they are not the God. And it's very clear in its use that it's not claiming that somebody is deity. This is not that case. So let me give some examples. Jesus quoted Psalm 82. In, in the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter number 10, Jesus referred to Psalm 82 and quoted, quoted that psalm where it says, Ye are all gods. However, as I said, this is not the typical use of the word, and it is very specific, and it is very clear who it is speaking to and which way the word is being used. So tell you what, let's actually go ahead and read Psalm 82. It's a very short psalm. It says, God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods, little g, and plural. So we can know that this use of the word gods here is referring to magistrates, you know, rulers, kings, somebody along those lines, that he judges them. And then in verse 2, the psalmist asks, How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Defend the poor and fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and needy, deliver the poor and needy, rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand, they walk on in darkness, all the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High." But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. So in verse 6, it says, I have said, ye are gods, little g, and plural. So just like in verse number 1, it's little g and plural to refer to the fact that they are multiples, not the one true God. They are multiples, and they, it, this term is being referred to them as rulers over people, as judges over people. But verse number one is saying that God will judge them. And then it talks about how that they have judged unjustly. They have been wicked and allowed wickedness. Things are bad. And it says, I have said ye are gods, little g and plural, and all of you are children of the Most High, but ye shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. So it makes it clear here that these are not actually gods. 
with a capital G. These are not the one true God. These are not deities, but these are magistrates. These are rulers. These are judges. These are men because it tells us ye shall die like men. You may be in charge. You may have judgment over others, but you are not the one true God. The one true God will judge you and you will die like the men that you are. So this is one example here. And then notice here in verse number eight, it says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. So we see the little g gods being judged by the capital G God, where the psalmist cries out to the one true God and says, Arise, O God. And we see the difference between these because it uses the plural for the little gods, which are men, but when it refers to the one true God, it does not refer to him as a God. It does not refer to him as one of the gods, but it addresses him directly. So there's nominative case and there's vocative case. Vocative case is when you are being addressed directly by name. Nominative case is when something is the subject of the sentence. So in verses 1 and 6, those are the nominative case. They are the subject of the sentence. He judges among the gods. Verse 6, ye are gods. That's the nominative case. The vocative case, arise, O God. He's being addressed directly and God is being used as his name. Arise, O God, judge the earth. Those are the cases there, the nominative and the vocative. Another example of the nominative case is in Exodus chapter 7, verse 1, where God is speaking to Moses and he tells Moses, I have made thee a God to Pharaoh. So again, it's the nominative case, I have made thee a God to Pharaoh, but it also has a God. It specifies that he's not the God, but he is a God, little g, meaning a ruler, Moses is going to serve as a proxy for God. So God uses this in the nominative case, little g, specifies that he is a little g God, not the capital G God. It's very clear in its context and its usage of the word that it is not speaking about the God. But if we go back to Hebrews chapter 1 in verse 8, the Lord God, the Father, speaks to his son and says to his son, thy throne, O God. He uses the vocative case and addresses his son, calls him by name as God. He addresses him as God, calls him God by name. So yes, even though there are some very specific and very clear cases where the word God with a little g is used to describe somebody who is some type of magistrate or is serving as a proxy or something like that, that that does occur. This is very clearly not one of those cases because no one is ever called God by name except the Lord himself, not by God. Heretics, pagans may call somebody God who is not God. But the Lord calls no one God by name except God himself. 
the one true God is the only one who can be called God by name. When scripture says the Lord God, it's talking about the one true God. When the psalmist cries out, O God, he is talking about the one true God. And here, when the Father says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, he is speaking about the one true God. Now, when God the Father himself speaks to Christ and addresses him as God by name, what heresy it is to deny the deity of Christ. What blasphemy to say that Jesus Christ is less than God the Son when God the Father himself has addressed him and declared him to be so. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Jesus Christ is God of the everlasting throne. Think about how wonderful and joyous it is that the one who came and loved us so much that though he knew no sin, he became sin for us, took our sins upon himself, suffered and died on the cross and rose again on the third day, defeating death, hell, and the grave. That one, that Savior, that Lord, he is the one who sits on the throne forever and ever. His seat at the right hand of power, his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high, his throne at the right hand of the Father will never end. He will never be dethroned. He will never be defeated. He will reign for all eternity. His seat at the Father's right hand, his majesty, his authority, his dominion, his power are all without end. Much will pass away. A lot of things are going to pass away, but not his throne. He will even submit his throne. He will submit his kingdom unto the Father. When he's brought all his enemies under his feet, he will submit all to the Father. But his throne will not end. His reign, his power, his dominion is his forever. He is king of kings. The Father himself has declared that the throne of the Son is forever and ever. So even though the Son submit his throne, even though the Son submit himself and his kingdom to the Father, the Father declares that the throne of the Son, the King of kings, is forever and ever. So the Lord says his angels are spirits and that his ministers are a flaming fire, but his Son is the king of kings whose throne is forever and ever. His son is the Lord God of the everlasting throne. He is king of kings. And him being king of kings and sitting on an eternal throne, it's only right that he should have a scepter. That scepter being the symbol of kingly authority. And Hebrews 1.8 here tells us, a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of of thy kingdom, the kingly scepter that our king of kings holds on his eternal throne is a scepter of righteousness. Now that may not mean as much to Americans like me who have no king as far as an earthly king, uh, but to the Hebrews, 
that phrase, a right scepter or a righteous scepter, was a Hebrew expression. And it means that that king would rule with justice, that his judgment would be fair and equitable. So what this is saying is that as Christ sits on his eternal throne, that his judgment is good and righteous. He's not a respecter of persons. He can't be bribed. He can't be flattered. His judgment is righteous and perfect and fair. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of his kingdom. His judgment is good. His judgment is righteous. His judgment is perfect. His ways are perfect. And when by God's grace we make it to heaven, it's not going to be us asking God why this, why that, and trying to counter what he allowed to happen or what he did. But we are going to get there. And when our eyes are opened and our understanding is opened and we see him for who he is, we are going to have a better understanding of just how righteous and how good and how holy and how perfect he is. And that the things that he has done and allowed in this world and through our lives is nothing for us to question, but to glory in him and to have peace in knowing that all things that he has allowed throughout all of time has been in his justice, his goodness, and his righteousness. Because it's not just a cliche. God is good. And Christ, as our judge, when he judges sin, he judges it rightly. And Christ, when he brings harsh judgment against wickedness, he does it rightly. We may sometimes, in our, in our fallen state as mortal humans, look and say, well, I don't see why that's such a big deal. But when we see him, we'll understand his righteousness. And when we understand his righteousness, we'll understand the evil of man's ways. There will be no questioning God's judgment. We will see that Christ's judgment is perfect and righteous in every way. Our Lord is good, folks. Our God is righteous. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. His throne is forever and ever, and a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of his kingdom. He rules with righteousness. And not only does he rule with righteousness, but because he loves righteousness and hates iniquity, God has anointed him with the oil of gladness, and he laid the foundation of the earth, and he's going to fold up the heavens. But that's all a lesson for next time. So if you want to learn more about that, you'll have to tune in then. I want to say thank you very much for listening to this episode. I hope and pray God blesses you, and we'll see you next time.